Hello and welcome to another episode of Creedle. I'm sorry that it's been so long since I did an episode of Creedle. I know it has been a long time and many thanks to those of you who reached out to me and said, hey, have missed an episode. Hope you're doing okay. I am indeed doing okay, but I'm recording this on January 20th. The last episode that I released was with Andrew and it was the uh, anti-Semitism episode on December 8th. So this has been a month and 12 days. I believe that's the longest time I've gone without an episode, uh, except for the times when I've actually announced a break. So I'm sorry for not announcing any sort of break. It wasn't my intention to not record for a month and a half, but here I am anyway. Uh, There's nothing in particular that happened other than things have been busy. My family is fine. Everyone is doing great and in good health. In fact, Sally and I are expecting our fifth child uh, in two months, which is very exciting. We're super pumped about that. So please keep us in in your prayers. And pray for a safe and uh, safe delivery for uh, Sally and uh, the baby boy. Uh, but no, we're doing great. Things have just been very, very busy, uh, both at the in the on the professional front and uh, just on the family front, since we have so many kids and just came through the holidays and had a lot of time with family and all that. So all of good, all all good things. It has just kept me away from the podcast microphone a bit longer than I would have liked. But anyway, all of that uh, notwithstanding, here I am back to podcast a bit uh, today. And I'm doing it by myself. Uh, I should be joined by um, some really interesting guests in the very near future. But I wanted to, to just talk about a few, a few different things and solicit your feedback on a few other things. So maybe we'll start with the, the feedback things. First, I would love to hear from each of you who are listening about what you want to hear in this podcast. What do you want to hear on Creedle in 2023? What types of conversations do you want me to have with people? Who do you want me to have those conversations with? What do you think about this sort of shift or the, the focus that we've had recently on things in culture as opposed to, for example, discussions of systematic theology and apologetics? Is that a good shift? Do you want to go back to the older stuff more? Do you want to have a healthy balance between the two? Uh, what kind of things do you enjoy listening to on Creedle? Um, I love hearing your feedback when you write in responding to a specific thing that I've said or one of my guests has said, uh, and that's great. I also love just hearing general thoughts. If there's something that you want to hear, if there's a topic in the news that I haven't talked about and you would love to hear my take on it or have a guest on to hear his or her take, I would love to have that kind of feedback so that I can tailor this show and make it uh, make it more valuable for you uh, so that you actually can can get something out of it. And, uh, and I don't want to shy away from the tough questions. There are not questions that I'm going to avoid just because I you know, don't want to get in trouble. I think you know after listening to enough of this podcast, I'm not afraid of uh, engaging on the hard topics. I'm not afraid of uh, trying to, to go deeper than just the surface on some of the more controversial issues of the day. And so I'm happy to do that if you think of things that, that you want me to do. Uh, so that's the first thing. Would love to have your feedback on that. Second thing, got a couple of big projects uh, in the works, uh, not strictly related to the podcast. The first of those is a screenplay. Uh, many of you know, just from conversations that I've had on the podcast at various points, that I have a huge interest in film, much more than just a passing interest. And it is a dream of mine to some sometime in the future get involved in film, uh, and I want to write my own film. So I'm doing that. I'm embarking on this journey to write a feature-length screenplay. I'm very excited about it. I'm not going to tell you any more than this. It is a thriller set in the American Southwest. 
So perhaps not exactly the fare that you expected, but you also know that I'm a big Flannery O'Connor fan and she's, of course, she sets all of her things in the Southeast, but there's a, there's a, there's a Gothic, uh, there's a Gothic, you know, arid vibe, I think to, um, to her stories that, uh, you know, have certainly inspired a lot of the stories that I really enjoy. Like for example, Breaking Bad. So you you probably know that I'm a huge Breaking Bad fan. Have the whole uh, the podcast called Breaking Pod, in which Josh Goldman and I break down every single episode. And so so that sort of really captured my imagination. I do think that Breaking Bad is a very sort of Flannery O'Connor like story. Uh, and so I'm really I'm I'm really drawn to that kind of storytelling, and I'm trying to emulate some of that in this feature film that I'm writing. So. Uh, I would appreciate your prayers for this endeavor. It's definitely not an easy thing to do, but I'm very excited about it and um, and you know making making progress where I can uh, when I find free time. The second thing, this is a bit a uh, bit more of a long term project. Probably will not make a ton of headway on this this year, but I'm thinking uh, more and more seriously about writing a book specifically to talk about this move towards exvangelicalism. I don't know if you're familiar with the term exvangelical. Uh, you may not be if you're a cradle Catholic and you haven't had a ton of um, sort of engagement with the evangelical movement in Protestant Christianity. Uh, but I come from a Protestant background, as you know, and uh, at one time identified myself as an, as an evangelical Protestant. Uh, certainly have hundreds of friends who have done the same. And I've noticed an, an alarming trend very recently. And by recently, I mean the past five years. So many of the people that I grew up with, so many of the people that I went to college with, and at that time were practicing evangelicals, have now distanced themselves from that identity, if not fully abandoned it and walked away, because they, because they come to believe that its core convictions are not compatible with the core convictions that a sort of modern scientific mindset uh, directs you to have. Or there's some disillusionment at the at the people, the sort of leading lights of the evangelical movement. And so the I'll, I'll say more about that in just a minute. But the the book that I'm thinking about and would love your feedback on this and just be pointed in the direction of resources that may help to sort of shape my arguments and shape shape the counter arguments. The book that I'm thinking about writing is basically uh, a a guide to deconstruct your faith in the right way. Now, why do I say deconstruct your faith? Well, it's because I've had many of these conversations with these friends of mine who have said, I've deconstructed my Christianity. And I I haven't done this, but I imagine if you do a Google search for deconstruct Christianity, you will find many, many, many blog posts, I'm guessing, uh, written by precisely this type of person, this uh, formerly evangelical, now self-identified ex-evangelical who has deconstructed their faith uh, and now finds themselves on the outside looking in, they probably believe that there's a God, but their their adherence to that belief system is very pluralistic. Uh, they do not want to tell others how to believe or what to believe. They do not want to make any sort of truth claim that might uh, be mutually exclusive of someone else's rival truth claim. And ultimately, the God that they believe in is this sort of celestial Santa Claus, right? It's basically a moral therapeutic deism. God is real, I think, and if he's real, he uh, he loves me, and therefore, because he loves me in the way that I think I need to be loved, he permits me to do all of these things, and he can't possibly uh, say that that is a bad thing if it's something that makes me feel good and makes me feel happy. Uh, you know, the same for, for any, any of the friends that I know and any of my, my friend group. And so this becomes basically a very sort of milquetoast, watered-down version of deism that bears very little resemblance to classical theism, let alone 
uh, classical Christianity. And the problem, of course, is that by doing this, uh, these people have separated themselves from the fold of Christianity and reject the central truth claims of Christianity. No longer do they embrace Jesus' claim of I am the way, the truth, and the life. Much less do they embrace Jesus' claim of being fully God and fully man. So these, th- these things that are absolutely central to the Christian faith no longer hold pride of place in the, in the ex-evangelical mind. Um, because they have sort of scandalized themselves by doing a little bit of homework. You know, they read one, one book by Rob Bell. Rob Bell is this, um, this very once prominent ex-evangelical pastor who has sort of deconstructed his own, his own faith uh, and written, uh, written uh, a lot about it along the way. Or Josh Harris. Josh Harris uh, may be a familiar name to some of, the, some, of, some of you. Josh Harris was a very prominent evangelical who wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And it was all about how Christians need to stop dating each other because dating is about casual relationships that leads to casual sex uh, and just a casual approach to male-female relationships. And instead, Christians need to court each other. And courting is not, it's not quite dating by another name, but it's basically pursuing male-female relationships with an eye towards marriage and always with that intention, uh, being much more intentional about, about doing it. But his book was sort of, it, it was all kind of wrapped up in this, in this um, uh, idea of purity culture in the uh, evangelical world. And eventually, he repudiated his own book and basically said, I wrote a lot of things I wish I didn't write. And sadly, he and his wife got a divorce. And ultimately, he ended up basically saying, I'm not a Christian. Anymore. He was a pastor, by the way. Uh, he ended up saying, I'm not a Christian anymore, actually. I'm kind of figuring out what this means. And I, I don't know, last I knew, he was doing some sort of like executive coaching thing, but basically helping people deconstruct their own faith. And so anyway, this is a very common, common journey, and I'm not the only person to notice this. You can also find many people writing about this as well, uh, and I'm sure others have written some good books about this, but I want to write a book specifically about this phenomenon um, and responding to some of these arguments because I've spoken to people who are in this exact situation who have abandoned their evangelical Protestantism. Um, now, now, by the way, I also abandoned my evangelical Protestantism, but it wasn't uh, to walk away from Christianity. In, in pursuit of this sort of moral therapeutic deism that better aligned to what I, what I wanted to believe and, and the quote-unquote research that I had done on the, on the facts, I abandoned evangelical Protestantism by, by actually going deeper, right? And so I still accept so much of that. I just, I just went deeper. I dug deeper into Christian tradition. Uh, I did, dug deeper into the sacramental imagination. I embraced more of that than I had before, not less. And so, so I share with the ex-evangelical I share this, this, in some sense, this abandonment of what I was raised to believe. Yeah, uh, but, but in another sense, we went very, very different paths. And so what I want to write is for that person and sort of outline, outline the steps, outline the evidence for the path that I took, because I think that's where the truth leads. It's easy to read one book by, for example, Rob Bell or Josh Harris or uh, Sam Harris, the famous atheist, Who's, who's actually really, uh, I don't mean this as a criticism of his, of his person, uh, but of his thinking. His, his thinking is lightweight. He's, a, he's, a, he's, he's not an intellect, he's, or he's not an intellectual. Uh, Sam Harris's books, Against the Existence of God, are just kind of pathetic, like The End of Faith. I've read it. It's awful. Uh, and it does a very bad job of arguing um, for what he's arguing. But anyway, it's, you know, a, a, lot of these, a lot of these young people, they read a book like that, and the, the, the scales metaphorically fall from their eyes, and they realize, oh, there is no God, of course. So what, what's an example of this? I don't know. Um, 
uh, you're raised as an evangelical uh, in some cases, certainly not all. You're, you're raised to believe that God created the world in seven literal 24-hour days. And then you go to college and you take a geology course and you realize that uh, you know, the vast majority of scientists and the vast majority of scientific evidence does not support uh, a way in which it is physically possible for the world to have been formed in seven 24-hour days, you know, in a span of, uh, I'm doing public math here, what's <laughs> 168 hours, right? Um, and then so you just, you, you know, that sort of rocks your world and you think, wow, that's crazy. Or uh, you read further, you, you know, you, you maybe you're, you're at a public university and you take like a, an intro to comparative religions course and you realize that, wow, there are a lot of other Near Eastern religions at the time of Judaism that were saying a lot of the same thing. So clearly this is just sort of uh, a Near East tribal religion that emerged victorious over all the other ones nearby. And sort of that's why we have this as our heritage. Or uh, you're in a in a sort of intro to biblical theology course at, a, at an unserious uh, university. Uh, and you're being taught by a, you know, secular, uh, quote, Bible scholar who teaches you about the uh, the Greek Septuagint and the Vulgate and how discrepancies between the uh, New Testaments in each led to different doctrinal formulations. And you think, wow, the, the, how could the Bible be inerrant if we can't even agree on, on what version of the Bible there are? So you encounter these types of arguments, right? None of which are, I mean, those are all, those are all important things for us to be aware of and for us to talk about and to understand, but none of which actually mount any argument against the Christian faith whatsoever. Um, all, all of which, uh, all of which have been addressed repeatedly, uh, in very good ways by, uh, prominent Christians, uh, prominent Catholics, uh, who have really good answers for all of this, as does, by the way, the entire tradition of the church. Uh, and we don't need to go into details on, on all those, but just those three examples that I gave now, I mean, I, I could, I can make podcast episodes, um, right now, this, you know, exploring each of those and why none of those things is a disqualifier for Christian faith. And why, in fact, uh, you know, in at least one of the cases, uh, it strengthens the case for Christianity. So uh, all that to say, uh, we've done a really, really bad job across Christianity. This is not a Catholic problem. This is not a, a Protestant problem. This is a Christian problem. We've done a really bad job at forming our children, forming our young people. And so they grow up with these very caricatured ideas of the faith. And as soon as they meet some, some the, sl- the slightest resistance, to that caricature, the entire house of cards collapses. So what I think needs to happen is we need to help these people who are still pretty young, by the way, we're talking about you know 20-somethings and 30-somethings. We need to help these people deconstruct their faith in the right way, tear down what was unessential, inessential, tear down what was not on a solid foundation and start from the beginning. Uh, start from philosophy, start from, from Aristotelian arguments for the existence of God, for example. Move on to natural theology and biblical theology and explain how it all coheres and how it all fits together. Uh, I would not be a Christian if I were not convinced that the existence of the Christian God is the best explanation for reality as we know it today. Uh, I'm absolutely convinced of that. And we can make really, really good philosophical and historical and theological arguments for exactly why that is. Uh, But we often don't try, or if we do try, we don't have the right audience. So anyway, I want to capture a lot of this and put it in a book and make it available to people who are questioning their faith and have walked away from the the faith of their childhood. So um, that's that. Uh, There are three more things I want to talk about um, briefly, Uh, three things that have been 
in the news, um, none of which are related to each other, but all of which are interesting. Uh, the first, and to my mind the most significant, is the death of Benedict XVI. Uh, I hope one day Saint Benedict XVI uh, obviously served as Pope for a period of, uh, I think, six, eight years, 2005 to 2013, I believe. Um, but, but one of my heroes. It is, I was thinking about this the other day. It's probably true that there is not someone of the people whose lives overlap my own. There's probably not a more influential writer on my own faith and thought. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis uh, probably is more influential on in my own thought than Benedict the Sixteenth, but C.S. Lewis, Lewis's life did not overlap with my own. So, someone who was alive while I was alive, um, Benedict Sixteenth. Benedict, I always stumble over his name. I was going to try to not do that on the podcast. Benedict the Sixteenth is probably the most influential. And so, when he passed away on December thirty first of two thousand twenty two, I really just felt this. This, uh, this, this passing of a, of a titan of the faith, this passing of a saint, um, that conviction of mine was, was, was further advanced, by the way, when I read that his final words on his deathbed were in German, of course, but the translation is, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Now, bear in mind, this is a man who wrote, I think, 66 or 67 books who was a priest since his 20s and so had written literally thousands of homilies, countless articles in journals, was the, the, the Rottweiler of the Vatican as the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and then obviously served as Pope. Uh, just an absolute titan of intellect. George Weigel uh, either, either said this or quoted someone as saying this in a recent article when he said that Benedict had the had the or then Ratzinger had the intellect of seven college professors. I mean, this this guy was just absolutely formidable. And when you read what he what he's what he's compiled, I mean, he's he's an incisive analyst. He's a very clear communicator. Just an amazing person. And yet, and yet, all of that knowledge, all of those efforts, all of that intellect boils down to four words at the end of his life: Jesus, I love you. Now that tells me, not that I needed to be convinced of this, but that tells me that Benedict got it, that his faith was real, that this was a, this was a, this was a conviction thing for him. This was not an intellectual play game, but that he was animated by a real and a fervent love for Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I, I just love that. I love that story. Jesus, Jesus, I love you. Um... Maybe three quick things I can mention about some of Benedict's writings. Um, the first is his Jesus of Nazareth trilogy. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It is, it is remarkable. The first is, um, I think it was the last written, but the first in the trilogy is the infancy narratives all about Jesus as a boy. It's the shortest of the three and the most accessible, so I definitely recommend that. It's a great Advent read, but you can obviously, you know, I recommend you read it, read it now. It's great. Um, but it's, it's just remarkable, uh, and he incorporates so much uh, of the then contemporary philosophy and the understanding of what, the, what and who the Messiah would be. Um, one of the parts of the book that has most stuck with me is this, uh, this little discourse on uh, the star. What was the star that led the wise men to Bethlehem? What does that symbolize? How does that sort of contextualize um, uh, how people use astrology today? 
Uh, he went into Keplerian uh, orbital mechanics and, uh, and whether or not there was an actual celestial body in the sky uh, that would have appeared uh, to be over Bethlehem to wise men traveling from a certain, uh, certain direction, etc. Just really, really detailed and, and marvelous stuff to, to learn and to dive into. Um, and then he goes into the Lord's Prayer, uh, an extended, you know, basically a almost book-length meditation on the Lord's Prayer for the second book. Um, and then the third book is all about Holy Week, the, the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So really, I mean, maybe the greatest work of Benedict. Um, and I say that, you know, he wrote, he wrote more impressive scholarly stuff for sure, but, but the Jesus of Nazareth trilogy is accessible to the layman. And that is really, I think, where... Uh, and Vatican II would agree with this, I think, where the, the lion's share of the work needs to be. We need to be embracing and equipping uh, the lay person for the universal call to holiness. And so I highly, highly, highly recommend that trilogy. Uh, the second thing to point out, this is just influential in my own life, but Benedict had a really good uh, conception, I think, of purgatory that helped me as I was coming into the church. I've talked about this on my podcast before. In fact, um, I don't remember exactly what which episode this was. Let me look it up real quick while I'm speaking. But the Protestant conception of purgatory from the outside in is basically that purgatory is a little mini hell. By the way, the episode of, that I'm speaking about on purgatory was uh, March 10th, 2020. It was me and my friend Kevin Boschman talking about purgatory. But the Protestant notion of purgatory... Uh, is often thought of as just a mini hell, right? Purgatory is just like little place of suffering and you just go there because you're not good enough. Um, you know, otherwise, you weren't good enough in this life, so you got to go to purgatory and then you can go see God. Well, that's, I guess, technically mostly correct, um, but it doesn't capture what's actually happening here uh, in purgatory because purgatory really is about God's grace. And again, I won't do an extended meditation on this. If you want to hear that, go to that March 2020 episode that I did with Kevin. Um but purgatory is about God's grace. And what I mean by that is purgatory is actually a means of salvation. Purgatory is not a mini hell. Hell is a place of separation from God. Purgatory, and this is where Benedict really helped me, purgatory is the encounter with God. It's not some like antechamber, some waiting room, some hotel lobby before you can actually be with God. Purgatory is the, the existential state of being united with God. The problem is, if we're not ready to be united with God, that 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 encounter is going to be uncomfortable, right? There's going to be this, this encounter with the all-consuming fire and all the stuff around us and with us and in us that needs to be consumed will be consumed. And that might be painful. I don't mean in a, in a corporal uh, way necessarily. I mean just in a sort of existential way. But purgatory itself is the encounter. The encounter with God is grace, which of course makes sense because God is charity himself. So of course an encounter with God is going to be grace. Um, and Benedict incorporates some, some, uh, some Pauline writing from Second Corinthians to sort of do an extended meditation on this and the, the, the dross being, being burnt away, et cetera, as we encounter God. Um, and I really found that to be a very helpful way of thinking through, thinking through this, um, this idea of purgatory, which to me as a Protestant was, was pretty foreign. And, uh, and Benedict helped sort of dispel the caricatures that I had, I had imbibed um, in my childhood and young adulthood. So I really appreciated that, that as well. And then the final thing to point out is his very famous Regensburg address, uh, his address at the faculty of the University of Regensburg. Um, if you look this up today and you look up Benedict Regensburg, Regensburg address, the first thing you'll see probably is this, um, 
this scandal, this controversy that came around, because there was a line in his address where he said something like, um, show me what Muhammad brought. Uh, let me find the quote here. Yeah, he said, show me just what Muhammad brought that was new, and there you will find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread by the sword the faith he preached. Now, interestingly, uh, this did become a huge source of controversy. There were protests throughout the uh, Middle East calling for the death of Benedict, etc., the crazy thing is no one actually read the speech because what he said in the speech, uh, that specific excerpt was a quote from a 7th century, um, or maybe it was actually a 14th century, anyways, long ago, yeah, 14th century emperor um, who said that. And Benedict himself said, uh, said that he, he, he uh, in, in saying that he addressed his interlocutor with a startling brusqueness, a brusqueness that we find unacceptable. And then he quoted it basically saying, uh, this is unacceptable. This is this is not this is not my view. This is what the uh, the emperor then said, and he uses that to sort of launch into a more extended meditation on faith and reason, uh, a a relationship that the the Christian faith gets right, and a relationship that many others, including that of Islam, do not. Um, now, this Regensburg address is it's it's sad that 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 it got so mired in controversy because that was not the central point that that line about Muhammad was not even close to the central point of this Regensburg address it was about faith and reason and uh in it um Benedict talked about the the Hellenization of Christianity um and then the de-Hellenization of Christianity what I mean by that is uh Christianity um is bound up in many respects, with uh, Greek philosophy, look no further than you know the the Summa uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologiae, and how much he incorporates Aristotle's work into the Summa. Uh, when you read the Summa, by the way, if you see Aquinas say the philosopher, he's talking about Aristotle. That's the philosopher. Um, and so, so, uh, but but not only that. I mean, read Paul in the Pauline Epistles, and he is trained in Hellenistic philosophy. So, so much of Hellenistic philosophy, actually, it doesn't form the basis of Christianity. The basis of Christianity is, of course, the Logos, Jesus himself. Um, but but the, uh, the sort of uh, the application of Greek philosophy terms is all throughout early Christianity and, and even up to today. And, and um, one of the reasons for that is that the, uh, the, the, the direct, the divine revelation as revealed to us in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus um, is the uh, is the is actual reality, as is the sort of natural philosophy developed by the Greeks, and so those two things are they are not the same, but they flow from the same source, which is the logos himself. And so there's this idea that from the very early days of Christianity that faith and reason go together; they're not opposed, but they go together. So so Benedict uses this as a as a theme of this of this lecture. And then he talks about the de-Hellenization of, uh, of Christianity. And he says the first part of this happened with uh, the, the Reformers and the Reformation. Um, they tried to go uh, pursue sola scriptura. And by doing that, they wanted to, as he says, seek faith in its pure primordial form as originally found in the biblical word. Um, and then he says metaphysics appeared as a premise derived from another source, which is why many of the Reformers uh, like Luther himself, were skeptical of the sort of philosophy of the Greeks. So that was phase one of the Hellenization. And then phase two was the liberal theology of the uh, 19th, 20th, and certainly 21st centuries, um, although really it was mostly the 19th and 20th, 
uh, Benedict cites uh, Adolf von Harnack but, uh, as the sort of leading light of this, but you could really insert any sort of um, mainstream, mainstream liberal theologian of this time. Uh, and he said this, this phase was about sort of um, separating, uh, separating the, the sort of fact of Christ's uh, historicity with the sort of fact of Christ's uh, person. Um, and so basically he says that uh, in this view, Christianity is about Jesus and Jesus's person, but theology is really just something sort of historical and scientific. So there's a separation uh, of the two. He says, um, this modern concept of reason is based, to put it briefly, on a synthesis between Platonism and empiricism, a synthesis confirmed by the success of technology. On the one hand, it presupposes the mathematical structure of matter, its intrinsic rationality, which makes it possible to understand how matter works and use it efficiently. This basic premise is, so to speak, the platonic element in the modern understanding of nature. On the other hand, there is nature's capacity to be exploited for our purposes, and here only the possibility of verification or falsification through experimentation can yield decisive certainty. The weight between the two poles can, depending on the circumstances, shift from one side to the other. Um, and so there's this, there's this uh, shift here, and I, I did some work in my master's thesis on this, this shift as well. There's a shift here towards positivism and empiricism, um, separating the sort of theological truth claims in Christianity, uh, like Jesus is fully man and fully God, um, from the sort of... Uh, uh, from the sort of historically verifiable claims, like Jesus was a man, a real man in in uh, you know the in modern day Israel and um, Palestine, right? So uh, there's a separation of those two things, and Benedict says that's an it's an inappropriate separation. It's not that one of those is truth and the other is sort of belief, but they can both be truth, even though one is, is one is of a sort of positivist empiricist uh, variety. Okay, and then against that backdrop, Benedict, this, Benedict says the third stage of dehellenization is happening now. And this is basically all about cultural pluralism. The third stage of dehellenization looks at the early church and says, okay, the early church was clearly, uh, clearly sort of um, colonialized by the Greeks, uh, for lack of a better word. Um, and uh, because of that, early Christianity enculturated a lot of Greek stuff and a lot of Hellenism. And so um, what we need to do is return to the simple message of the New Testament prior to that Hellenization, and then we can enculturate it anew in whatever particular context and milieu we find ourselves. Now, Benedict says that's not entirely wrong, but you're kind of missing the forest for the trees. Of course, the gospel needs to be enculturated in various contexts, and the gospel, um, the, the particular expressions of the gospel may look different from, from place to place and from time to time. Uh, but the general thesis is, as he says, uh, it, it is coarse and lacking in precision. He goes on and says, the New Testament was written in Greek and bears the imprint of the Greek spirit, which had already come to maturity as the Old Testament developed. True, there are elements in the evolution of the early church which do not have to be integrated into all cultures. Nonetheless, the fundamental decisions about, made about the relationship between faith and the use of human reason are part of the faith itself. They are developments consonant with the nature of faith itself. Okay. So then he says, and this is the important part, I'm not going to read the entire thing, but this is the final two paragraphs in which he says, here's my conclusion. Let me just read a couple of highlights here. Um, let's see, the scientific ethos, the will to be obedient to the truth, and as such, uh, sorry, the, the scientific ethos, moreover, is the will to be obedient to the truth, 
and as such, it embodies an attitude which belongs to the essential decisions of the Christian spirit. The intention here is not one of retrenchment or negative criticism, but of broadening our concept of reason and its application. While we rejoice in the new possibilities open to humanity, we also see the dangers of arising, uh, dangers arising from these possibilities, and we must ask ourselves, how can we overcome them? We will succeed in doing so only if reason and faith come together in a new way. If we overcome the self-imposed limitation of reason to the empirically falsifiable, and if we once more disclose its vast horizons. In this sense, theology rightly belongs in the university and within the wide-ranging dialogue of sciences, not merely as a historical discipline and one of the human sciences, but precisely as theology, an inquiry into the rationality of faith. Okay? Here's, here's another paragraph that he ends with, but I'll, I will end mine there. Jesus Christ is the Logos, the organizing principle around which the entire everything, the entire realm of existence coheres. It all is around Jesus. He is the center of everything. He is the Logos, Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. He is truth. Okay, and to separate, Benedict is saying, to separate um, faith from truth, that which is knowable, is simply wrong. It's incorrect, it's misguided, and most importantly, it's catastrophic. It will lead to a very bad end. I might, I might return to this theme in a moment. Okay, so I'll wrap my discussion of Benedict there, but I love this man. Love, love, love this man. Um, he did immense good for the church. I've often wondered why he, why he stepped down from the papacy and uh, frankly wished that he did not, but he did. Um, this man, I'm convinced, was much, much closer to the heart of Jesus than I, uh, than I am. And so he, I'm sure, discerned it, um, discerned it well. Uh, and with no other intention than to please Jesus. Uh, and so I don't question his wisdom doing so. I don't see, um, you know, I don't necessarily see the fruits of him doing so, but uh, those fruits are not for me to see necessarily. So um, I'm, glad, I'm glad that we had uh, nine years of his prayers for the church uh, in the time between he step, him stepping down from the papacy and him passing away. And I'm even more grateful that we have uh, more of his prayers from heaven as he is uh, no doubt a more powerful more powerful intercessor there than he ever was here okay second two things i want to talk about very briefly uh i'm in santa monica right now i'm traveling um i think many of my users know i work for hallow the the catholic app uh as of uh as of actually very recently the number one prayer app in the world which is a very exciting thing um and so I travel from time to time, and I'm in Santa Monica, California right now as I record this episode, which is probably why the audio likely sounds a little bit worse than it normally does. I apologize about that. Um, but uh, as, I, as I record this today, um, Google just announced that it laid off 12,000 people. Microsoft just, uh, I think, last week announced they laid off 10,000 people. Um, late last year, Facebook uh, laid off 11,000 people, uh, and the list goes on. Tech companies everywhere are laying off tons of people, and it's not just tech companies. They are hit the hardest right now because they are not actually tied to a, you know, a physical uh, real-world product. So these kind of tend to be the first uh, the first ways to sort of trim uh, trim things in a downturn of an economy. But uh, lots of people are doing it. Um, Wayfair. Let's see. I have the list right here, actually layoffs.fyi, although it's not working for me very well right now. Okay. Yeah, uh, Wayfair. So that's a furniture company, furniture e-commerce company, just laid off 1,750. Uh, Vox Media today just laid off 130. 
So the point is um, that lots of people are laying off lots of workers, which means lots of people are out of work. The economy is not headed in the good direction. Uh, almost all the fundamentals of the economy are headed in a bad direction. Uh, depending on who you talk to, we either are in a recession or will almost certainly be in one soon. And that recession is likely to be pretty sticky. Uh, in other words, it's not going to just uh, you know be six months of pain and then out. It'll probably be more like you know 12 to 18 to 24 plus months. Um, so things are bad, uh, economically speaking. And frankly, you know, even even when the when our economy is robustly healthy, things uh, things are still certainly amiss. Uh, I am certainly in favor of free markets and in favor of capitalism, but I can recognize that. Uh, capitalism unrestrained by virtue is a bad thing. And I just think it's a problem when you have uh, one of the richest zip codes where I am right now, Santa Monica, I just looked up, is the eighth most wealthy zip code in America. And I was walking around this morning on uh, Wilshire Boulevard and just lost count of all the all the homeless people who were you know, shuffling around on the street, had nowhere nowhere to live, nowhere to rest their head. Uh, so this is sad. We have an economy that is uh, grossly out of whack. We have an economy that is systemically unhealthy in many respects. Uh, and it's an economy that's about to get worse. Now, here's the, here's the upshot for the Christian. The upshot for us is that this is an opportunity to grow in both trust in God, who is the only one who provides, and to grow in charity for our neighbor. Um, and you may have an opportunity for one or the other, depending on the situation that God has blessed you with. If you have lost your job or are facing a harder time providing for your family because of inflation, you have a greater opportunity to trust in God who does provide. If you uh, are secure in your job and find yourself not crushed by inflation and have the opportunity to give uh, some of your income away to increase your tithe to the church to grow in charity through the through practicing the corporal works of mercy. Uh, whenever there is more need, it is always easier to clothe the naked and feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty. So, um, you know, this is this is this is advice that I need to hear as well. I spend I spend too much time worrying about the economy, worrying how will I provide for for my family if things get really really bad or. You know, is am I am I as secure as I possibly can be right now? You know what? As secure as I possibly can be is is a uh, is the wrong question. I think am I secure? Am I am I am I doing what I can to secure um, my family? Is a good question for the Christian father and provider to ask. Um, but at, am I as secure as I possibly can be? I think is the wrong question because um, the word possibly seems to include a lot of things that may not be God's will for me to do. God does not call me to be as secure and as well compensated as I possibly can be. Uh, God calls me to be faithful to my vocation as a father, and I can do that by adequately providing for my family um, and uh, making sure that, that they are growing in holiness just as I am growing in holiness. Um, but in, in, in any case, regardless of where you find yourself on the economic spectrum, uh, the upshot of the situation that we face now is we have an opportunity to grow in trust and to grow in charity. Uh, and both of those things are immensely important for our own sanctity. Uh, look at any of the saints and how they practiced uh, charity, especially corporate works of mercy. Um, and look at any of the saints and how they trusted God. I think especially of uh, St. Therese of Lisieux, whose entire theology, she's a doctor of the church, of course, and she's a doctor of the church precisely because of her theology of trust, uh, trusting in the arms of Jesus as a little elevator uh, to heaven. So that's my, uh, that's my exhortation re re related to the economy. Okay, third thing, very quickly, that I wanted to talk about. 
Uh, I might do an extended discussion on this as well. So let me know in the feedback if you'd be interested in that. But there's a new technology called ChatGPT. I don't know if you've heard of ChatGPT. It's kind of all the talk of the internet right now. ChatGPT is a technology developed by a company called OpenAI that is doing what I would characterize uh, as the is developing the sort of most advanced to date by a long shot version of consumer facing content creating uh, artificial intelligence. What I mean by that is they have uh, it's free for now. They're going to monetize it, you know, very soon. But but they've developed a um, a tool uh, that is based on natural language processing and a lot of neural networks um, that has basically harvested the sum total of digitized human knowledge, uh, you know, that which is written down and available to be combed in uh, in in cyberspace. It has incorporated all of that into a just vast giant treasure trove of data. It has uh, synthesized and organized and categorized all of that so that it can respond in very surprisingly, in some cases, alarmingly coherent ways to simple prompts. For example, I uh, have a ChatGPT account so I can check this out. And I went on ChatGPT and said, hey, ChatGPT, give me a podcast introduction for my podcast. It's called Creedal, and it's a show about culture and theology for Catholics. And ChatGPT took about five seconds to come up with this, and it said, Welcome to Creedal, a podcast that explores the intersection of culture and theology for Catholics. Join us as we dive into the rich tradition of the Catholic faith and how it relates to the world around us. From discussions on current events and pop culture to deep dives into the teachings of the church, we aim to provide a thought-provoking and engaging listening experience for Catholics and those interested in the Catholic faith. So come along with us and let's dive into the world of Creedal. Okay, again, that was based on my prompt that said this, give me a podcast introduction for my podcast. It's called Creedal, and it's a show about culture and theology for Catholics. So that's pretty remarkable. Okay, second thing was, I said, um, I said, write a brief story about someone encountering grace, but do it in the style of Flannery O'Connor. And I won't bore you with this one, but it, it pretty much failed at this task. Now, it gave me a story. It's one, two, three, four, five, six paragraphs long, and it wrote it in about 12 seconds. So it gave me a story, but this is, no one, no one would mistake this story for a Flannery O'Connor story. Um, it, it copies some stuff from Flannery O'Connor. There's a woman on a bus, for example, um, but the style itself is not Flannery O'Connor's. So what are our takeaways from here? Uh, and this is not going to be an extended reflection on the sort of like theological implications of AI or anything like that, that we can save that for a future, a future discussion. But what are the implications? What are the immediate implications of ChatGPT? Okay, two quick things. One, um, this is not a knowledge creation tool. I think that's a very important point that's often missed in the sort of discussions about, uh, you know, the advance of AI, et cetera. AI, what AI can do is it can categorize existing information and it can reassemble that information and it can yield insights from that information. But AI cannot actually create new knowledge, right? This is, it is, it is a sort of knowledge summation and a knowledge organization tool. It is not a knowledge creation tool. In this case, this isn't even close to, to knowledge creation. This is uh, content creation. So this is just uh, understanding the rules of English grammar, um, being able to sort of average across millions of blog posts as they exist in the, on, on the web today, and optimizing uh, your ideas uh, in that format. So it's not even, this is not even knowledge creation. It's just, it's a sort of milquetoast content creation. Now this is better content creation than many people could do, but it's worse than several can do, right? And so I think there's two immediate implications to that. 
One is this has the immediate potential to put people out of jobs. I'm thinking of, for example, I mentioned that Vox laid off people, 130 employees. Many of those employees, I happen to know, were uh, were blog writers on the SB Nation. That's um, I'm actually not sure what SB stands for, but it's a sports like it, it's a sports network owned by Vox, SB Nation. They have a variety of blogs. Every major league baseball, football, hockey team has one of these blogs. Um, many of the writers that were put out of business were bloggers for the NHL, the hockey uh, blogs of SB Nation. Okay. Blogging is, uh, I've read several of these types of blogs in Espionation, and the writing is never really, really high caliber. Or in one case, I can think of it being high caliber, and that person was quickly hired away to you know, write for a, a, national, a national outlet. Um, this technology, if you, give this a, if you give this technology a game synopsis, or you just plug it into uh, the game tracker for an NHL game, this technology can easily spit out a blog post giving you an entire summary of the game in prose, throw in a few jokes for good measure, talk about the next upcoming games and predictions for those, all of that. Uh, So this has the potential to immediately put lots of people out of work. Um, You know, we we might sort of call that like uh, lower skilled or lower experienced content creation. Okay, that's implication one. Implication two is this will just sort of saturate, saturate the, an already oversaturated information environment. and ultimately lead to decreasing creativity overall and increase the divide between the good stuff and the bad stuff. Why do I say that? Well, these, these technologies are based on, um, based on just, like I said, sort of aggregating and averaging across the sum total of what is crawlable. Crawlable being like it's, it's, it could be indexed by technologies, right? So this looks at, you know, let's just take a number, 5 million blog posts and sort of averages across those and figures out how to write. The more this technology and and other technologies like it replace the sort of indigenous content creation, the more these things are going to all sound the same, right? Because as those sort of continue to average across, it will be settling on and coming to a mean point of content creation where everything will sound the same. The exception will be those who will be unaffected by it and may even benefit from it because those people can still be creative. They'll still be having their their long form uh, writing gigs at the New Yorker and um, the prestigious magazines. They'll be writing their own novels. They'll be going indie and launching their own substacks and putting them behind paywalls so they're harder for, uh, for things like OpenAI to crawl. Um, and so those things will stand out more and end up being more creative, will be, I think, un- unhampered by the, the AI one. Um, and that's, that's the second implication, um, of the sort of sum total that it's going to decrease creativity overall and allow the sort of more creative, more uh, adventurous, more prominent types to... Um, to continue being creative. But I think ultimately, uh, even there, it might hurt their creativity because creativity is often spurred by creativity. So if you have fewer people overall being creative and being able to create things and make new things, you're going to have just sort of decreasing creative competition, certainly less creative waste. And I think overall, over time, that average will come down and we'll just, we'll all become uh, we'll all become numbskulls uh, who can no longer create, we can no longer write, we can no longer write films. Um, and we end up just sort of consuming things that the, the AI overlords and the few human exceptions to the rule end up creating for us. All right, so you can tell I'm not a huge uh, chat GPT fan. I also think, I will save this for another conversation, I think that the, the, the farther reaching implications of AI and of chat GPT, because it's not just about content creation, uh, are significant and um, deserve 
to have people in the Catholic world thinking about them diligently and seriously and writing about them. Um, it has, you know, AI in general has the potential to be the most significant technology invented since, uh, you know, fire was discovered. We didn't invent fire, but, you know, since um, allowing us to be sort of domesticated carnivores. Uh, <laughs> so uh, there's a lot here. It may be even more significant than that. There's a lot here to, to sift through. Um, and so maybe I'll bring on someone on the podcast soon to talk through that. But those are my very brief thoughts specifically on ChatGPT. Uh, you should check it out um, if you'd like. Uh, definitely, definitely some interesting stuff. Uh, and it is, it's, it's, it's fascinating to plug in a prompt and see what it come up with. So anyway, that is it. Once again, give me your, your feedback. What do you want to hear from the podcast this year? What do you want to hear more of? What would you like to hear less of? Uh, what resources would you suggest for me as I kind of plot through the book that I want to write? Um, and, uh, what feedback do you have for me on any of these, uh, the Benedict XVI, the chat GPT, the, uh, economy, any of these thoughts uh, on that as well. Welcome any and all feedback. My email as always Zach at creedlepodcast.com. And until next time, God bless you.